I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And today we're going to look at just verse 10 once again, as we did last Sunday. Um, And just two thoughts from that particular verse. One has to do with the importance of Christ being raised from the dead, the resurrection. And the other is Christ rescuing us from the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? What does it look like? And uh, why is it part or how is it part of his being? So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father God, speak to us today as you have to your children down through the ages. By your spirit, by this living word, talk to us. Give us insight and understanding into you and your ways and into how all of that applies to us, fits into our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul talks about having raised Christ from the dead in this context. Makes no mention of his death on the cross. So the question is, why? Why the resurrection? Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just as important to our eternal salvation and to living a godly life as is his death on the cross. We know this to be true because God's word says so. For example, in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, we read that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And by the way, this was Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, which meant he had to do some deep thinking and some listening to Christ between uh, the resurrection and his ascension. Uh, I would think that the uh, disciples asked a lot of questions. At least I hope they did. They seemed to by what they were able to write after Christ ascended. But here's Peter talking to this crowd and he's saying that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. And then he says, but God, but God raised him up again. And in so doing, put an end to the agony of death. The agony of death. What is the agony of death? We are all destined to die. Some die an agonizing death. Some die in their sleep. Feel nothing as far as we know other than they've 
left this world. The agony of death is that death that eternally separates us from God. That's the agony of death. To be eternally separated from God. To be in hell forever. To forever endure the suffering of that separation. In putting Jesus to death on the cross, God broke the power and the ability of sin to enslave us. In raising Jesus from the dead, God broke the power and ability of death to eternally separate us from himself. Again, we need both sides of that. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 6. And as I've said to you in the past, especially when we were working our way through the book of Romans, it's my opinion that Romans chapter 6 is the forgotten chapter in the Bible. Or the ignored chapter. But in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that we enter into or share in Christ death and resurrection not just his death but his death and resurrection through baptism and why do we need to know this why was this so important that he would give this whole chapter this whole section of his letter to the church in Rome to this particular issue because according to Romans 6 4 through 9 it is by entering into Christ's death that sin's enslaving power is broken in the Christian's life. And it is by entering into his resurrection that we are able and enabled to live a life that is pleasing to God and for God. We need the sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. There is no doubt about that. But we need more than just that sacrifice. Sin has an enslaving power And we need to be set free from that enslaving power. And Christ did that in his death. But we not only need to be set free from the enslaving power. As Jesus eloquently said in his parable on the house that had a demon in it. That house was swept clean but nothing was put in it. And what happened? Ten worse than the first came to inhabit it. We aren't just breaking free from sinful habits. The alcoholic, the drug addict, isn't just stopping their drinking or their taking of drugs. They have to enter into a new life, a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of choosing, new values, new beliefs. And then they have to live that life. And that's what the resurrection does for us. It makes us able and enabled to live a life that is pleasing to God and for God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, and if you read that section, this is just a classic example of deductive reasoning. Paul uses deductive reasoning to show that without the resurrection, the gospel is foolish, and trusting in Christ for eternal salvation is worthless. In other words, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, if he only died for our sin, 
If he's not been raised from the dead, then neither the gospel nor faith in Christ will do you any good. Peter shows the power and the effect of the resurrection in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And I want to read these words because they're, it's just a great statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his, that is God's great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How so? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. If Christ is raised, we will be raised. And as we will see in Thessalonians here, this letter, some of the concern was, well, what about those who've already passed, those who are dead? If Christ returns, what about them? Paul is arguing that they're going to be raised. In fact, as we've seen, they're going to be raised first. At least that's the message that Paul is giving the Thessalonian church and gives us today. So reading on here. Cause us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. An inheritance. What Christ receives, we receive. We share in the inheritance of Christ. And we will obtain that inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. Pure. It will not fade away. It lasts forever. Reserved in heaven for you. Who are protected by the power of God. Through faith. For salvation ready to be revealed. In the last time. The return of Christ is part of the last time, and we will be raised with Christ. To just sum all this up, having given you some scriptures, as I said I would, there would be no reason to wait for Christ's return if he had not been raised from the dead. And there would be no purpose for evangelism or for the hope of living a godly life if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. His resurrection is just as important as his death on the cross. And by the way, this is why we celebrate Easter Sunday and why we celebrate on Sunday. What was the Sabbath day? It was Saturday. That was God's selected day. It was the disciples following the resurrection who said we will now set Sunday aside instead of Saturday to focus and worship God, the resurrection. So every Sunday that we meet, we are celebrating the resurrection. Moving on to the rest of verse 10 in the Thessalonians chapter 1. It is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Modern day Christians, that is Christians in our day, are known to talk about God's love far more than about his wrath. And in talking this way, they seem to imply that God's love is a good thing, while his wrath is not such a good thing, or it's kind of an embarrassment to us Christians. 
In my opinion, the problem is not with God's wrath, but with our desire to fashion our image of God according to what we want him to be, instead of seeing and accepting and trusting him for who he is. You know, it's hard to sell being converted, coming to faith, repenting, and being born again in order to live for God. It's much easier to sell that in order to be freed from the fires of hell. It's hard to sell a God who has wrath. It's much easier to sell a God who has love. And sadly, too many modern-day Christians have a misunderstanding of God's love and his wrath. Yeah, we want a God who's fashioned after what we want him to be fashioned after, who's like what we want him to be like, rather than accepting and trusting in him for who he is. The reality is, is that God is a complete being, even though he's multifaceted. He is not just one thing. He's a number of things. And all of those things are integrated together. And so, though the Bible says God is love, and it says it two places, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and 1 John four sixteen, it does not mean that God is devoid of wrath or that he must not feel and express wrath. Wrath is but one of the integrated parts of God's multifaceted being. It's not a lesser part. It's not a superior part. It is one of the parts. God affirms this, I believe, in Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7. And as you may recall, Moses wanted to see God. Show me your glory, Moses said. Great request. God said, okay, I will. And God passed by Moses. And when he passed by Moses, showing Moses his glory, he spoke to Moses, and what he said was who he is. This is who I am, Moses. And so we read these words that God used to describe himself to Moses. The Lord, that is Yahweh. The Lord God, that is Yahweh El. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Oh, if you'd only stop there, wouldn't we be happier? Maybe. But he didn't stop there. He said, yet, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. 
What many don't understand is that God's love is not confined to his mercy, his patience, and his long-suffering, just to name three aspects of love. It includes his wrath and his indignation. His love includes his wrath and his indignation. These are just two of his various responses. Wrath and indignation are just two of his various responses to needless harm, unnecessary destruction, and cruelty brought upon the victims of willful, deliberate sinners who know better, yet either don't want to do better or won't do what is necessary to be better. Wrath and indignation are but two of his various responses. Responses to needless harm, unnecessary destruction. Let me back up just a moment. During worship, I was telling you how I used power to my own advantage in my marriage against Barbie. I was doing needless harm. I was hurting her needlessly. There was no need for that. It was just for my sake. It was needless harm. If you understand that example, then you can think with me as we talk more about this today to think about all the needless harm that is done in our world and maybe you're doing even now to people around you. Needless harm, unnecessary destruction. Cruelty brought upon the victims of willful, deliberate sinners who know better. I wouldn't have wanted Barbie to try to control me, to make me do what she wanted against my desires or interests. But I was willing to do that to her. I was a willful, deliberate sinner who knew better. But I didn't want to do better because I wanted my own way. And there are those who know better, but don't want to do what is necessary to be better. To better understand what I'm talking about, let me go on, go beyond the example I just gave you. So imagine someone knowingly and deliberately doing what they know is wrong. So they knowingly and deliberately do wrong. And in so doing, they cruelly treat or they seriously injure, or they emotionally scar someone near and dear to you, like a child or a spouse or a dear friend. So picture that. Or maybe imagine someone repeatedly taking advantage of you or your loved one, or repeatedly being mean, selfish, or unjust towards you, and those you love. What would you think and how would you feel towards such a person? What would you do to correct the situation? And how would you deal with the willful and unrepentant sinner? You see, it's one thing to harm somebody and then come to your senses and confess your sin and make things right, ask for forgiveness and 
get back up and treat them as you ought. It's another thing to continue to harm somebody through your own sinfulness and not want to come to your senses, but want your way so much that you just continue on without repenting, without confessing, without making things right. If you understand where these questions are taking you, then you have at least a beginning understanding of God's wrath and indignation when dealing with unrepentant sinners whose selfish and sinful behavior has hurt and harmed those he loves. We get a picture of this in God's dealings with Israel, and I'll get to that in a moment. Israel, these were God's children. This was God's family. This was a nation that God chose out of all the people on the earth. He selected Abraham. And yet, he felt and expressed wrath toward his own children. Why? Because they were doing evil things that brought harm and destruction, injury, emotional scarring on their own children, on their own people. And I want to remind you that God loves everyone in that nation just as he loves everyone in this room. And God loves my wife, I hope, as much as he loves me. Or he loves me, I hope, as much as he loves her. I always think God's on her side more than mine. But that's another matter. My point is, is that when we are harming other people, we are hurting the people God loves. And what's he going to do? How is he going to feel about that? I do want to point out that there is most often and probably close to always a stark difference between God's wrath and our anger toward sinful people. God's wrath is conditioned or mixed with his mercy, his compassion, his knowledge of what is in the evil person's heart Remember, God doesn't just look on the outward person. He doesn't just see the outward actions and behavior. He looks at the heart. And God's God's knowledge is such that he knows what that person has experienced or been through or had to endure in the past. I don't think we ever have to condone or approve of evil behavior in another person. But we are wrong not to try and hear their story, to understand what they've been through and where they came from when we mete out justice. There's a statement in the counseling world that has been around for some time, hurting people hurt people. It doesn't justify what hurting people do. But it does open the door for our compassion and our patience 
and our understanding when dealing with them. On the other side of that is our way of usually dealing with people. Our anger or wrath is often blind to the things God takes into account. We don't put in the effort. We don't take the time to hear the other person's story. We simply judge. Which is why we blow up and vent our anger on people rather than being compassionate in dealing with them and fair in punishing them. Can we be angry? Yes. Sin in our anger? No. God's wrath is spoken of enough times in Scripture that I think it can give us a good idea of the why and how of his wrath. We won't look at all the scriptures by any means, but I do want to take us through some of those scriptures. But before looking at those scriptures, what I want to do also is to give you a short list of examples of God's wrath that are found in the scriptures, uh, especially the Old Testament. But before getting to that, I want to take you through the story of God's wrath towards Israel. And I'm going to pick one story. In Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 40, by the way, we're going to use the whole chapter, but just in verses 1 through story, we have the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who led 250 Israelite leaders in a rebellion against Moses and Aaron because they felt they were qualified these three guys and the 250 others, felt they were qualified to be spiritual leaders equal to Moses and Aaron. In response to their prideful rebellion, God opened the earth and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, along with their wives and children. He just simply opened up the earth and they fell in and disappeared. Then... God sent fire and consumed the 250 men who had joined Korah in the rebellion. Now, the story doesn't end there. The very next day, this is, you know, less than 24 hours later, many of the Israelites, they got up that morning, they thought about what happened, and they were angry at Moses, and they were angry at Aaron, and they blamed them for the way God dealt with the rebels. They said, God would have never done this to these guys. It's all your fault, Moses and Aaron. So apparently they didn't understand God and they didn't understand the situation, but they were happy to blame. In response to their attack on Moses and Aaron, God sent a plague that killed 14,700 Israelites before Aaron, which was, Aaron did this at Moses' direction, before Aaron could appease God's wrath and stop the plague. And that's in verses 41 through 50. Now you may think that God's anger and resulting actions were excessive in both these stories. However, this was far from the first time this generation of Israelites had acted in these ways. Remember, this is the generation that came out of Egypt, and they were on their way to the promised land. And you may recall that their first act of rebellion 
their first occasion of complaining against Moses and their first time of blaming took place when they were trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. That's where it started. A day's walk out of Egypt. They had just had the ten plagues. They had just come out of Egypt and brought with them the jewelry and the fine clothing and other things that they uh, asked the Egyptians for on the way out so they could, quote-unquote, worship their God. And here they are complaining because they're trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. That particular time, God and Moses were very patient, very gracious in dealing with the Israelites. However, Korah's rebellion and the people's blaming and complaining were either the 10th and 11th or the 9th and 10th time this had taken place. No, not the exact same thing, but the basic same idea. Angry at Moses, blaming Moses for the problems they've got, angry at God that he's got them in this mess, why didn't he leave in in Egypt, etc., etc., So this wasn't the first time. And mind you, this time, when the plague was going through the Israelite camp, who was the one who said to Aaron, quick, run to the temple, get the censer, put in the incense, light it on fire, and get ahead of the plague and stop the plague? It was Moses that did that. Talk about grace, patience, kindness. And to make matters worse, these two incidences, Korah's rebellion and the people getting up the next morning and complaining and blaming, these two incidences took place soon after Israel had voted against going into the promised land and learning what their punishment would be for their disobedient decision. They had just finished that situation. And now this. You know, it's as if they didn't want to learn from their past experiences. Or maybe they couldn't learn. I don't know. I believe they could have. So to me, it was because they didn't want to learn. And beyond all this, their rebellious, complaining behavior was not just an offense to God. It was not just an attack on Moses and Aaron. It set a bad example. Stick with me here. It set a bad example for the younger generation. The generation that was going to survive the 40 years in the desert and take the promised land. And here they are setting this horrible example for them. This is how Christians behave, they would be saying today. What kind of an example do we set for the people around us? What kind of an example do we set for our children? And beyond that, their behavior brought unneeded and unnecessary troubles on the whole nation. 
a plague was going through the camp. Yes, only 14,700 died, but that's still a lot of people. That's a lot. It's a lot of loss of life that was unnecessary. They did this to their own children. Do you understand that? They set this bad example and they brought these troubles on the camp and they did this to their own children. Don't you think God should be mad about that? Would you? Hopefully you're beginning to see the reasons for God's wrath. He's not just an angry God who gets angry at a whim. You see, he is a God of love. Love does no wrong to its neighbor, God tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. I think it's 13.10. Love does no wrong to its neighbor, and when we do wrong to our neighbor, we are wronging someone God's, God loves. And if somebody was doing this to your children, would you be upset? Would you be angry? And yet God's love and mercy, even in these situations, were an inseparable part of his wrath. He didn't continue to wipe out the whole nation. No, he let the censor, the prayers the aroma stopped his wrath and he showed mercy. It was a whole group of people, not just those 14,000. It was a whole group of people in the Israelite camp who got up the next morning and were mad. But he showed mercy and grace. Yes, he had wrath, but not without mercy, not without compassion, not without grace. And why would he express his wrath? We talked about this when we were looking at Old Testament lessons. God's wrath should caution would-be sinners to not sin. And why does he want to caution would-be sinners to not sin? To limit the amount of evil in the world and to limit the amount of unneeded harm and unnecessary destruction. So again, if we just think of his wrath as wrath and he's a cavalier God who just blows up on people. No, he does this with purpose, with intent. All right, I want to finish up with the examples of his wrath and a few scriptures. So these are examples of God's wrath taken from the scripture. Famine. And by the way, think about this in light of our own world today. Maybe we're seeing more of God's wrath than we realize. Famine, wild beasts and snakes that kill mostly the children, the weaker, the ones that can't get away from them. Plagues, wars, flooding, hurricane force winds, 
hailstones, fire. Think of the fires in our own country over the last five to six, seven years that have just destroyed acres of land and homes and taken lives. Is that just because the tinder is dry? The wind is blowing? Someone fails to put a fire out? Fire. Being controlled by foreign powers. Trouble, distress, destruction, desolation. And turning sinners over to follow their own sinful desires with the outcome being self-destruction. These are examples of God's wrath. And I leave you with these last four scriptures. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Ephesians 5.3-6 But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty. Did you hear those words? This you know with certainty. That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Romans 1.18 And I'm reading this from the ESV only because I like the way the last phrase goes from the ESV. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And the last is Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood These are precious words. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. Whatever you think about yourself, I can tell you that I deserve God's wrath. I've done some pretty horrible things. Treated people in pretty bad ways. To be saved from the wrath of God is a gift that's unimaginable. It's beyond reasonable expectation for all have sinned. I know I have. And I am grateful that I can be saved from the wrath of God.